thank you to Ricky for leading us for the first time this evening. Uh, wonderful to have uh, people involved in, in leading our services and participating in them in so many ways, taking the opportunity to use their gifts and to develop them and to, to become a real, uh, a real body where we share together. So thank you, Ricky, for blessing us this evening. As you know, we meet together for coffee or tea or coffee immediately after the evening service. It's something we don't announce every week because we, we assume that most people know about it. I'm announcing it this evening because, well, I suppose I want to give you the opportunity to, to spend a bit of time in my company and to congratulate me on Manchester United's uh, victory in the premiership today. It, it would seem, it seem uh, like a good, a good time to... Um, any Chelsea fans you might want to draw close to them and um, just uh, encourage them in whatever way you can. Let's come to look at this part of of First John. I don't know about you. Did you dis- did you find that hard to follow that reading that we read? Um, John is well. How can we put it? He's not the most linear thinker. Uh, he seems to jump around a wee bit. Uh, and as I've already said to you, I'm not going to try and follow his train of thought because I, I just I, I don't know that I would be able to. But this evening we're going to pick up uh, another, another thread or another theme of John's teaching. Uh, and I believe it's a very, a very important one for, for us here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. I think particularly for us, at the, the place where we are as a congregation at, the, at this point in time. So I hope that will become clear as we come to look at these things together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that it's the one reliable place that we can go to and know that we will be told the truth. We know that we'll be told the truth about you, uh, the truth about ourselves, and the truth of how you long to reach out to us and make us your people and reshape us in the likeness of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you'd come now and, and share that truth with us once more through your word just now. Amen. As men and women in the church of Jesus Christ, we're called to live lives of love. Uh, That was a a theme which a recent moderator used, but he picked it up from from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where we're told explicitly, live a life of love. We're given the responsibility of telling one another that God loves us. We are presented with Christ's command that we love one another. Love is the air that we breathe in these communities of God's people that we're trying to to form. Now, unless we're massively naive, we realize right at the outset how difficult that is going to be. In fact, I'm not sure I can think of a more difficult task than to to bring together a community of people and, and to say, right, let's really learn to love one another. No matter how difficult that task is, that is the task that we have been called to in the church. So we, we do best probably if we admit at the outset that we need help. And, and three weeks ago, we turned for the first time 
to Pastor John's first letter or his first sermon where he offers us some teaching and a lot of useful help as we try to foster love in our community. The, the things that we noticed the last time were the absolute necessity of love. You can't be a community of God's people and not have love among you. But immediately at the outset, the other thing that we noticed was the difficulty that there will be as we foster love in our community. As we scanned through John's letter, we, we very quickly realized, if you'll remember this, if you were here three weeks ago, John's community wasn't, wasn't ideal by a long shot. He, he talks about liars in his community. Four times in his short letter, he talks about hatred that there is. He, he talks about self-deception, a refusal to help somebody in need. At one point, he even talks about people as children of the devil. So this is no sweetness and light, perfect community that John's addressing. It's not an ideal congregation. But still, he insists that there must be love. And he talks in loving terms, even to these people. If you remember, we noticed that, that he refers to them time and time again as dearly beloved children. That's how he speaks to them. He talks about God's love for them and how they are God's children. And it's as though John is saying, we're sinful people. And although this isn't going to be easy, despite our sinfulness, still the call is to a life of love. There is no alternative. God loves us and he's called us to love one another. Our lives and the life of our church must be marked by love. One of the things that I was taught in biblical studies in college that I still do, it, it seems very simple and it, it is simple. Maybe that's why I'm drawn to it. If I'm about to start preaching a new book, particularly one of the, the shorter letters, I pull out my pack of felt pens and I go through it and I highlight um, repetitions of themes. And I did that. I, I should have brought it with me and I could have held it up for you and shown you the, the color emerging. If you do that with John, the, the first, John's first letter, if you choose, if you look out for repetitive themes and then highlight them to see where they crop up, you'll find that the most prominent one, the biggie in First John, is love. Okay, John writes an awful lot about love, and, and people know that and understand that if they know anything at all about First John. Now, the surprising thing is the second one. I did a rough count of the number of mentions and occurrences of sin and expressions of sinfulness. 89 times in this short letter, five chapters. 89 times in this letter that's ostensibly all about love. John is talking about sin. And to me, it just threw up a massive question. Why would that be? If you were trying to establish a community of people who loved one another... Why would you spend so much time talking about sin? Why does John do this? Why does he talk so much about sin? I suppose the short answer to that question, the reason why John's so willing to talk about sin, is because he takes love seriously. 
He knows that love is under attack. And in fact, in his letter, he identifies two ways in which love is under attack in the community he's addressing. First of all is sinfulness, and we're going to look at that this evening. And then the second, and we got glimpses of it this evening, he talks about a spirit of antichrist. Now, if you haven't a clue what that was about as we read it, don't worry. We'll, we'll shelve that till next week. That gives me a bit more time to find out what, what he's talking about. But tonight, we're going to spend our time thinking about, about the sin in this community that threatens to undermine the, the love uh, among God's people there. Let's start with sin then. The people with whom you share community are all sinners. Have a look around you. See that guy over there? He's a sinner. And that woman who, you know, she's the loveliest lady in the world, maybe. She's a sinner too. And this minister up here who who tries his best week by week to bring you the word of God, sinner, absolutely. So no matter how positive your experiences of relationships have been here, no matter how friendly you've found us, I need to tell you that right here, just like anywhere else, we are all sinners. If, If we imagine anything different, if we imagine that when we we come into a place like this, that we can build up a community that's sin-free, we'll end up doing one of two things. And this is what often happens, I think, in churches. We'll end up settling for appearances. It's not that difficult, actually, to make a community appear perfect or, or sinless, at least for a time. We concentrate on the surface. We can create this sort of cozy, glossy, slick environment. And we end up with a nice moral club. But I'll tell you what won't be there. There'll be no love. There'll be no love in that community. There can't be. So we'll either settle for the surface of things or else we'll take a different approach. We'll start lambasting the the sinful people in the community. We'll blame them for being bad. Uh, We'll we'll treat them like incorrigible children. We'll take on the role of judge and we'll set about sorting the place out, redding out our church, making it a place that's where everybody thinks the right things and does the right things. We'll end up with a police state kind of a church. But I'll tell you one thing that won't be there. Love. So whether we settle for how things look on the surface or whether we take the strong arm approach where we come down like a ton of bricks on anyone who steps out of line, there'll be no love in either of these communities. There can be a lot of naivete about sin in churches. And actually that's ironic because we're, we're the people of the book people of the word of God. And what are we told there? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that. That's one of those verses that you're, you're taught uh, from you're, you're so high. It's a theology that we've grown up with. We know. 
And while we know it in our heads, we, we still give endless amounts of time and energy to acting as if it weren't true. To acting as though maybe all haven't sinned after all. Maybe that's true of other places, but not here. So we end up failing to take seriously that we ourselves are sinners and that those around us are sinners too. In our discipleship groups here at Kirkpatrick Memorial, we, we do an introductory class where everybody works together through the same materials uh, in David Watson's book, Discipleship. He talks at one point in that book on the subject of creating community. And he says the breakthrough to genuine fellowship comes when Christians stop relating to one another as righteous saints and start accepting one another as unrighteous sinners. A pious fellowship is no place for a sinner. In such an unreal and super spiritual atmosphere, everyone must wear a mask. Now, does that strike a chord? Is church the one place you come to during the week where you feel most under pressure to appear a certain way, to wear a mask? Is it possible that you go to all the other communities that make up your life with a greater freedom to be yourself than here? I think that's very much a possibility. Friends, it's not until we admit our mutual sinfulness that we'll be able to nurture real love in our community because I think it's only then that we'll be able to have real friendships. How easy is it to have a real friendship with somebody who projects themselves as perfect? It's only when we admit our mutual sinfulness that we'll begin to understand one another's weaknesses and only when we admit our sinfulness will we discover the greatest thing of all in our relationships, and that's forgiveness. Now, that's all very well to say that, to recognize the benefit that it would be to us if we were more open about our our own sinfulness and recognize it in our community. But we don't find it easy, any of us, I don't think, to admit our sinfulness, would prefer to claim that everything's going well, that we're walking with God, that we're in good fellowship with one another. And Pastor John, he noticed that in the community that he's addressing. He noticed that the people there make claims for themselves of how they're living, and he ruthlessly exposes the dishonesty of any claims of perfection. Look with me. Let's get into the text a wee bit here. Chapter 1 and verse 6. He picks out a claim. He says, If we claim to have fellowship with Him, with God, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and don't live by the truth. Skip down to verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse 10, he picks up another claim that we might make. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. John's a a skilled pastor. He recognizes this propensity in us to claim not to be sinful or, or not to be all that sinful. 
and he challenges it. He goes right to the heart of it. And he says, well, if we make those claims, we're liars and a harder, a harder thing still to say, we make God out to be a liar because God recognizes our sinful status. I think John's point here is really quite a simple one. He says the world's made up of two types of people, but it's not the two types we might imagine. The world is not made up of sinners and people who don't sin. No. The world is made up simply of people who admit their sinfulness and people who don't. If we claim that we haven't sinned, we make God out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So John approaches this community and he will not let them off the hook. He says, right, recognize your sinfulness. Accept it for what it is. And he's insistent on this sinfulness. And I think the reason he's so insistent on it is because of his primary theme, because he cares about love. I think these two are related in John's thinking. He knows that we can't get love right until we get sin right. Our, our biggest problem with sin is our readiness, as we've said, either to deny it or, or to make little of it. You know, probably if I went round the, the congregation here this evening and asked, are you a sinner? I asked you that in private over a cup of tea. I think everybody would say yes. So our next danger then, if we're people who, who don't entirely deny our sin, is to make light of it and, and to, to make small of it. We know what a euphemism is, don't we? It's when you, you use a nice word to talk about a nasty thing. That's what we do with sin. We call sin a mistake or poor judgment, an error, negligence, a slip of the tongue, an oversight, stupidity, a faux pas. We call it all these things, but we don't like to call it sin. Not where we're involved anyway. And the truth is, if we aren't willing to deal with sin will never have deep and strong relationships. Let me try and explain why I think there's a connection there. What happens when we hurt each other? Well, if you're anything like me, you find a way of saying in your own mind, I didn't do anything wrong. Or not much anyway. It wasn't a big deal. He or she should be able to get over that. We belittle our sin. We sweep it under the carpet. In a scenario like that, there's very rarely a big bust up. There doesn't need to be because, you know, nobody sinned. But what happens is we sweep, we sweep our sinfulness under the carpet and we begin to drift away just gently. Without the big bust up, without the crisis, we drift away from this, people, this person whom we have hurt because we're not willing to recognize our sinfulness. If we don't take seriously our sin, there will be in the long run no love between us. 
Let me put it like this. If I don't if I don't admit my sin, if I don't admit the effects that my actions have on you, in effect I'm saying that, that love isn't high on my agenda. It doesn't really matter to me all that much if what I've done's hurt you. The pastor and poet George Herbert, he understood this link between sin and love. He understood that the two have to be treated in parallel if either is to be really understood. He said, there are two vast, spacious things, yet few there are that sound them, sin and love. Pastor John sounds them. They're the two prominent themes in his letter. He makes sin a big issue because love is his big concern. I think this, this, is a, this is entirely countercultural for us in the church. Whenever we think of how we might improve our church life, this isn't where we feel, uh, feel led to go. We don't feel led to think of our sinfulness, to come confessing that and asking each other to forgiveness. What do we do in our churches when we want to see new life? We start singing new music with different instruments. We start a new organization. We hire a new member of staff or we build a new hall. That's where the answers lie. Friends, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. You know that. But the truth is that we could spend our whole lives doing these things and not dealing with sin. We could spend our whole lives doing these things and not therefore moving on to forgiveness and love. In the end, the only place, I think, in the world where sin is taken seriously is here in this community. The Christian church, the local congregation. But even here, I'm not sure that we take it seriously enough and often enough. At the core of who we are, there's something desperately wrong, and I think we know that. There's something that keeps us from sharing life together. And a lot of that is simply our, our, our broken relationships, our sinfulness, our pride, our stubbornness, the ways in which we have hurt each other in the past, the ways in which we're keeping each other at arm's length today. Friends, the only way to deal with all of this is by forgiveness. And here's the thing. If we don't really take seriously our sinfulness, all our talk in the church, and there's quite a lot of talk in the church about it, all our talk about forgiveness is nothing. Forgiveness is the answer to the question that doesn't exist. When there's no sin, then all our our claiming to rejoice in our forgiveness rings hollow. You can't be forgiven for the sin that you don't recognize or own. Friends, I hope all this talk about sin this evening doesn't sound defeatist. And and actually, it really shouldn't. Because when Pastor John talks about sin, he doesn't use it as an accusing label. He, He doesn't use it to condemn people. 
he has a different role, a different motive. Whenever he talks about sin and holds it up before his community, he's a bit more like, it's a bit more like going to see the doctor, a skilled physician, who whenever you come to him and and he, he has a bit of a look and asks a few questions, he begins by telling you what's wrong. Do you understand how important that is? If you went to a doctor, no matter how nice he was, no matter how lovely his manner was, if you went to him time and time again and he kept sending you away saying, oh, you're all right. Sure, you're all right. You'll be all right. If he kept doing that, he'd be no use at all to you as a doctor. Well, John here takes on this role of a, of a responsible physician. He tells us what's going wrong so that it can be made right. He tells us what's preventing the life of love in our community so that we can move back into loving relationships. So, almost every time that he talks about sin, he moves on to talk about forgiveness. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies us from all sin. Look at verse 9. He reminds us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In the opening verses of chapter 2, he says, if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. In chapter 4, verse 10, he says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. It's wonderful. In this letter, with with plenty of talk about sin, to take a step back and see what the verbs are that describe God's work. What are they? Purifying, forgiving, atoning. It's because God purifies our guilt forgives our sin, makes atonement despite our guilt, that we can live lives of love in the church. This is the only foundation for a community of love. Look again at chapter 2, verse 2. John tells us there that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And he repeats that claim in chapter 4, verse 10, telling us that God loves us and sent the Son as an atoning sacrifice. Underlying that NIV translation, atoning sacrifice, is the Greek word hilasmos. And it's a word that echoes centuries of Jewish experience of having sins forgiven, having the slate wiped clean, Whenever John uses this phrase, his readers would have thought back to the thousands upon thousands upon thousands among God's people who for a thousand years or more had come to the sanctuary 
and had returned from that place with their hearts right, with their consciences cleansed. They returned to their workplaces and to their homes, and they're confident of God's love and his acceptance and his forgiveness. And that forgiveness that they have received motivates them for a whole new way of living, a a whole new way to love God and to love one another. Sin. The sin with which they approached the place of sacrifice and of worship, real though it is, has been taken from the center of their lives. And instead, it's been replaced with love and forgiveness. The most important thing about who they are all of a sudden isn't their sinfulness. It's their lovedness and their forgiveness. Friends, if that's, if that's what this phrase meant to the, the Jewish people thinking of their, their visits to the temple and the sacrificial system, how much more does it mean to us? We know that Jesus Christ has come, that he's taken our sin on himself. He is the Lamb of God. He's taken the sin of the world. He's taken mine and yours. We're forgiven people, and we can now forgive one another, and now we're free to love. Friends, we've thought this evening about about John's John's often uh, often repeated references to sinfulness. We've recognized why that is. It's because he longs for deep and real love. Tonight as we close, I want to pick up one, one part of John's strand of teaching on sin. And it's one that would have confused all of us, I think, as we've read. Certainly, even as I read for you this evening, I noticed how, how strange it sounds. In the early verses, when he mentions sin, John is generally saying the same thing. He says we're all sinners. And anybody who denies that is is kidding themselves. He's a liar. But then, later on, in some of those early verses in chapter 3, he starts saying something that seems to contradict that entirely. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. No one who lives in God keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. And finally, look at chapter 5, verse 18. We know that anyone born of God doesn't continue to sin. Sounds like John thinks that we can live without sinning. Spent a big deal of time telling us that anybody who claims not to sin is a liar, and now, almost contradicting himself, he says that that anyone who sins doesn't know God. What can we make of that? 
It seems to me that John is calling us not to sin carelessly, deliberately, or casually. He's calling us not to live as though our sinfulness doesn't matter. Because sin makes a difference, a huge difference. Particularly when you're starting to try and build a community of love. Each act of sin hurts, harms, damages someone with whom we are trying to establish loving friendships and relationships. Another reason why I think we can understand this without seeing John as contradicting himself, I think for John, when he's talking about sin in this letter, first and foremost, he's talking about a refusal to love. So John's saying, you can't claim to know God and yet refuse to love. That's the great sin that he's challenging in this letter. It really struck a chord with me. Because I thought of some of the the most ardent expressions of faith in Ulster that I've been aware of, aware of growing up in these times that I've grown up. How some of the most ardent expressions of faith are, are made by people whose lives show little, almost none of this love. There's this claim that we love God and yet a willingness to hate others. And John, of course, deals with that explicitly later in his letter. He says, you can't claim to love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother whom you have. John's right. When he says that a believer cannot sin or does not sin, he's saying that people whose whole identity is caught up in being the loved children of God can't anymore settle for a way of life that isn't loving. Loving to those people around us. Friends, there is no other way for us. Even as a congregation of God's people, we can't settle for being successful on any other terms other than this. Becoming a community of love. Let's not settle for evangelical orthodoxy. If that's important to you, it is to me also. Let's not settle for for growing numbers and and some sense that people outside of our church think that this is an exciting place to be. Let's instead, let's instead long to be a community of love. Let's be willing to recognize our sinfulness, to confess our sins, to ask for forgiveness and to give it so that we can be drawn into real relationships way beyond maybe what we've experienced before. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the power of your word and how it 
it so often undermines our cozy, domestic, domesticated views of, of the life of faith. We think that, that loving communities are based on things like niceness, uh, congeniality. But here in your word, we've seen that that's not the case at all. Communities are love, of love are built on, on reality, recognition of our sinfulness, the willingness to confess our sin, to know your forgiveness, and to know the forgiveness of one another. Lord, we pray that you'd give us the courage to go this hard road, this narrow path. Lord, help us to settle for nothing less than the real shared life of Christ. Lord, take away any, any sense that would be satisfied with living on the surface of things and make us people who open our lives to you and to one another. Lord, perhaps the best way we can conclude our time together this evening is simply by saying, we are sinners. Have mercy on us. Give us your forgiveness. Bring healing to those places where our relationships with one another are broken or even cold. Lord, teach us to live lives of love. For Jesus' sake, amen.